And I thank you, Dan, for your unrelenting fidelity through these years. You're a living epistle of that song you just sang, which is why you sang it from way down there, deep in the heart. Let's turn to Romans 3.19, please. We want to remind you that the month of May is our annual food drive for Salvation Army. And thank you already for your overwhelming generosity in this regard. It's just been a great blessing. One of the great blessings that we've had in our past eight-plus years here in New Kensington is to be a blessing to the community and especially our co-laboring with the Salvation Army, an excellent ministry in this area, an excellent demonstration of Christ, and keep that going through the month of May. We also want to remind you, and I've neglected this a couple times, that the messages of those who spoke in my absence are out on the information table, and I never charge, but they're charging fifteen ninety-five per message, so no, you can grab them. They're free. Also, we have the message that I asked to be put out there, the message by Mrs. Brown, Pauletta Brown, who spoke in far better than her husband ever has in, <laughs> at Vermont Baptist. And I asked her if she would have that available to us, and so it is. And so her message is also available. Now, I'm going to ask a question today. It might sound pretty general, but... What's in your Bible? What's in your Bible? And this is extremely important because Paul is in opposition with a theologian in his own time that represents a point of view because this theologian sees in the Old Testament scriptures a prescription for righteousness through following or observing Moses' law. Paul sees something altogether different in the scripture. So it really is a question of what is in your Bible? What do you see in the Old Testament? What do you see in the scriptures? Romans is really a kind of fanning out of the entire Old Testament. Sometimes it's called the law, which is the Hebrew Torah, the Greek namas. But oftentimes we have to determine by the context what it means when the law is spoken of It often refers, remember our old phrase, pars pro toto, apart for the whole. It refers to the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures. Other times we see the law, and it's more of a local, specific, defined thing, and it has to do with the prescriptions or commandments of the law that came through Moses in the Pentateuch. And this is what... In a misinterpretation of Leviticus 18.5, this Christian missionary Jewish teacher and many teachers who also went and infected the Galatian churches with the same philosophy, and the same philosophy was put forth by those whom Paul called sarcastically super apostles in Corinth. It was the idea that justification or being set right comes through obedience to the commandments of the law in its more specific sense. But it's much more important that we understand that when sometimes the word the prophets is used, the writings of the prophets, such as in Romans 1-2 and at the close in Romans 16-26, the writings of the prophets is also 
a part for the whole, pars pro toto, a part that describes the whole of what we call the Old Testament writings, the writings of the prophets. By the command of the eternal God, the mystery of God, which is his secret kept silent for ages past, has been allowed to come forth. You don't look at the Old Testament to interpret the new, but you look through the eyes of the cross to interpret the Old Testament scriptures. It's called being staros-eyed. S-T-A-U-R-O-S is the word for the cross. Staros-eyed, that's my own little phrase. I don't know if it's been coined before. Very few things are original even when you think they are, but I call it staros-eyed. Retrospectively looking back through the Christ event, his death by crucifixion, his burial, resurrection, and exaltation. We see something in our Bible that others don't see in their Bible if they only have this historical perspective or legalistic perspective. So you could say to Paul, what's in your Bible? And he would say a spectacular, stunning revelation of the universally saving and rectifying, reconciling, liberating, transforming work of God in Christ for all of creation. You'd ask this Jewish Christian, he believes in Messiah, missionary who has a great missionary impulse, he's got to go convert people now. You'd ask him what's in your Bible, he would say, well, there is the requirement for these Gentiles They can come in to the people of God, us privileged Jewish Israelites, through first the males adhering to the first commandment of circumcision, the prescription under Moses' law, and then for them to adhere to the Mosaic law. Then they can come in to the covenant that God promised to Abraham and be the people of God with us. That's what he sees in his Bible. Two different visions. And Paul was not starry-eyed. That means he wasn't stunned by the brilliance of celebrities. He wasn't shocked or stunned into silence by someone with reputation, by a theologian with reputation, by a famous preacher. In fact, in Galatians, he almost sloughs them off. He said, I don't care who they are. I don't care who they are. If they avoid the cross because of the persecution, he said, let them be cut off. So he wasn't starry-eyed. He was staros-eyed. If you're seeing through the cross the scriptures, you're seeing much differently with a radical transformed perceptivity than anyone who before tried to view the scriptures and try to find Christ in them or try to interpret the New Testament by following the Old Testament. The Old Testament is only understood as the stunning revelation of Jesus Christ, if you look retrospectively with staros eyes. That's why Jesus said to his disciples, oh, slow of heart to believe. Haven't you read in all the prophets how Christ must suffer to enter his glory? How Christ must suffer to enter his glory. I didn't see that when I read the Bible in the Old Testament, but I see it now through the other side, through the Christ event. Christ suffered to enter his glory. A couple shockers here. Romans is more about the justification of Jesus than about you. To 
Romans is about the justification of God rather than our justification. Jesus Christ was the one who is justified. I told you early on we'd use the pastoral epistles as an interpretation of Romans. 1 Timothy 3.16, you have this curious phrase, God in the flesh, and then you have him justified by the Spirit. God in the flesh, justified by the Spirit. The righteous one, justified. But you see, when he was justified, so were you. And God is justified. You will be justified in all of your sayings and all of your doctrines, says Romans 3, 4. What does that mean? Well, Paul goes on to explain, God is justified in his action of justifying the ungodly. God is justified in justifying the ungodly. And you can object all you want. Now, I've said that to set up this. There's a a, a quotation, and I always wait when I study all week. I study intently. It's my passion. It's my excitement to find things in the Scripture, to find things in theology. This is the thing that popped this week. It's from J. Lewis Martin, who is, in my view, one of the premier apocalyptic theologians of our time. And listen carefully to what he wrote, and I only take a part of it. More often than we should think, or more often rather, than we should like to admit. We have attributed a motif to John or Paul when in actuality that motif is characteristic of theologians against whom these authors were waging a significant battle. Imagine the dogma sheets and the doctrinal manuals of denominations that include something about Romans 1.18 to 32 as if that's what Paul holds, as if that's a Pauline sermon or a Pauline motif. Imagine the shock that that's not Paul's view or not Paul's motif, but that motif or that sermon of a theologian that he was locked in life and death combat against. This is the most important, it's the most dangerous, but it's the most important thing we do in interpretation of the scriptures, discerning the spirits, discerning what voice is coming through, who is speaking and to whom. And that is something that we have to have. The truth of this statement is certainly evident in how Romans is often interpreted. And I've tried with a little help from my theological friends, and I have a lot of them, to be careful to sort out in Romans the motifs or themes attributed to Paul and which are actually characteristic of a theologian against whom Paul is fighting in a fierce battle. For example, a justification by human deeds... In observation of Moses' law, we have it in Romans 2 where in verses 5 and following you have to those who persist in right doing, we have the reward of life. To those who persist in self-interest and, and in sinfulness, there is wrath. Is that Paul? No, that's not Paul. That's a voice that we have to discern is not 
a Pauline motif. It's not Paul. A justification by human deeds in observance of Moses' law, beginning with submission to physical circumcision, is certainly and obviously, and most all Christians will agree with this, not a motif of Paul's or a doctrinal standpoint from Paul. But then again, and this is not so obvious, neither is it the motif of Paul about a final wrathful judgment of God on disobedient people. Paul does not espouse the doctrine of a retributive, wrathful, angry God. Contrary to Jonathan Edwards' famous revivalist sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, we are sinners in the hands of a gracious God, a God of unlimited benevolence instead. It makes you wonder what kind of revivalism America was founded on, America's faith was founded on, what kind of motifs. It's time to rightly divide the word of truth. So Paul does not hold a final wrathful judgment of God on disobedient human beings, but neither does he have as a theme of his teaching justification by the human act of believing or confessing or submission to ritual baptism. That's not Paul. Paul's motif His theme is the universally saving act of God in Christ Jesus through the cross. So picking up, and this is kind of picking up the strand from our midweek service. Let's go to Romans 3.9 first. Paul, this time I say Paul is fighting this guy with Wing Chun. He's going back and forth there, inches apart. You have to discern what Paul's saying, what the teacher's saying in response and and then there's a jujitsu. Paul takes the teacher's energy and uses it against him. This time in Romans 3, 9, he asks this question. And then in 3, 10 to 18, we've already done this. Paul grabs his opponent and jumps off a of waterfalls. A cascade of verses from the Psalms and three from Isaiah that reveals the universal sinfulness of all humankind, all of humanity in all of its times under the suprahuman power of sin, enslaved to it, complicit with it. Paul takes him down this thing, and he says in Romans 3, 9, this is what Paul says to the teacher, what shall we conclude? Now he's talking not me and you, he's talking about you and me together. What shall we conclude then? Are we, you and I, meaning you and I, teacher, as Jews, The same reasoning he uses with Peter in Galatians 2.16. Are we better off, that is, better than the world, who are deserving of this wrathful judgment of God? Are you and I better off? Now, the teacher has to concede a little bit because he says, well, not in every respect. Then Paul says, because I'm asking that because you, we, again, the plural, First person plural, you and I, teacher, we are those who proclaim the scriptures. We're theologians, he says. He's essentially saying we proclaim the scriptures. We teach the truth. And both of us have in our teaching careers and in Romans in our discussion so far, we have both done this. He says, 
we have previously accused everyone, both Jews and Greeks, of being under the power of sin. Hupo hamartian. Pantes hupo hamartian. And so he gives what I call this week, this midweek service, the hamartiological catena, the cascade of verses. And we've gone through that from 310 to 18. There is no way anyone can escape that indictment. All the human race in Adam, in all of its times, under sin. But look where he goes now. This is what I call the strategic pivot. This is the pivot that's fatal to the teacher's gospel. This is the pivot. And I say gospel quotes, air quotes, because it's not good news at all. It's never good news when a large percentage of human beings perish in an eternal lake of fire. It's not good news when people misinterpret the images of Gehenna and other things, as we've seen, made very clear. But look what he says in 319. Paul is now speaking. He says, now, it is obvious to us, you and me both, that whatever the Torah says, now here the word law has to be used in its pars pro toto. Here he's talking about what we call and what this, the, the Jewish people call the Torah, which includes Torah, the law, Nevi'im, the prophets, and Ketubim, the writings, including the Psalms. So when he says law here, he means the Old Testament. He doesn't mean Moses' specific 300 or 613 Laws that were given to the Jews in the wilderness. He means Torah, the Old Testament. What's in your Old Testament? What do you see in it? How do you see it? Big question. Verse 19. Now it is obvious to us, you and me, teacher, that whatever the Torah says, that's the whole Old Testament, it speaks to those under the law or in the law. That means to Jews who try to observe it, try to observe the local, more specific law. But the teacher then says, yes, that's true. He's, he's agreeing with Paul. But then he says, in order that every mouth may be stopped, he says, and the whole world be shown to deserve God's wrathful judgment. But that's where he walked right into it. He walked into the trap that demolishes his whole fortress right there because now the teacher interjects this last phrase. It's very difficult to, and delicate an operation to see that. But he concludes that the homardiological catena, or the Old Testament scriptures from the Psalms and Isaiah, that brings everyone under sin means that every human being is brought into accountability to God's wrathful judgment, and therefore rectification, or being set right and being rescued from that plight, is that each individual must come through adherence to Torah's commands into the people of God. This is why this Jewish Christian teacher has a missionary compulsion. You say, so-and-so has a great mission, missionary impulse, a great burden for the people over here or over there, over there. Now, that's often good. It certainly was good in Paul's case to want to get to Spain, which he never got to, as we taught this week. But as Jesus said to the scribes and the hypocrites and the Pharisees of his own time, woe to you because you travel over land and sea to make converts. 
But when you make a convert, you make them twofold, the child of Gehenna that you are. You don't give them the gospel. You bring them under this terrible fear of wrathful judgment. You bring them through this and you get them circumcised and you get them this and you think they're all and you tell them they're all right if they keep following the law. Paul is undermining this. This Jewish Christian teacher, like those many teachers that Paul fights in Galatia, have come with the urgency of trying to get people, the pagans, to become God's covenant people on the ground of legalistic observance of the law's commands. Now, here's where Martin comes in. This is all set up here, but J. Lewis Martin, M-A-R-T-Y-N, no doubt he's right when he notes one of the three major things, he, what he does is he puts you in the place of sitting in the congregation at Galatia or Rome and hearing these teachers speak, or this specific teacher, perhaps the most famous of all. Some people looked at him with starry eyes, but Paul didn't. Here's one of the three major things that these theologians, against whom Paul is engaged in a fierce battle, are saying. And here's, he presents the rationale this way. They talk this way, in other words, to the congregation. At the present time, through the good news streaming out from Jerusalem, they said, the Jerusalem church, the covenantal line is being extended to you Gentiles. Because through Messiah Jesus, and they believed in Messiah Jesus, through Messiah Jesus, Gentiles are now invited to enter the line of the Abrahamic covenant by observing the commandment of circumcision. To start with, you men. So this is also one of the main concerns of the theologian or the teacher against whom Paul is fighting in Romans. This teacher has already railed on these pagans. Romans 1.18 to 32 is his sermon, his motif, not Paul's, his motif. If we don't understand that, we're attributing to Paul something about a wrathful, retributive God that Paul never attributed to God at all, and never did and never will. Paul sees in the Old Testament something a little different than this guy does. And that most, and I don't want to say this in a way of pride, but in most preachers and teachers say, see the same thing in the Old Testament. Only they see it as a justification by the human act of believing. And then a staying in through the human practice of faithfulness. When in fact it's the faithfulness of Jesus Christ that gets us in and keeps us in. And it's participation in his fidelity that keeps us inside what we call the Christian life. And so this teacher has already railed on the Gentiles and done so in Romans 1.18 to 32 in a motif often wrongly attributed to Paul in order to show their desperate need to be circumcised and aligned to the law in order to be rectified. They see Jesus' death as a way to open up to the Gentiles the opportunity to become Jews through circumcision or following the prescriptions of Moses' law. So you still have, well, my preacher believes, this preacher on TV believes that Jesus died for our sins. Yes, but then what does he say you have to do to be justified? That's the point. 
So now, Paul makes what I call the astonishing pivot. If this was a martial arts, a mixed martial arts match, and it is, rhetorically speaking, this would be the move that you'd want to watch the highlights 10,000 times with. Because here, Paul makes the astonishing pivot. After establishing the motif of a universal homardiology, now this preacher will say, yeah, the whole world, that means those out there, not us inside with circumcision. The whole world is liable to God's wrathful judgment. So I'm going to be a missionary to the whole world to proclaim that they can be saved by circumcision in Acts 15.1. I'll tell them about our Messiah Jesus, that he's come, and he's, his, his cross is pretty good. You know, it kind of has some value over here on the side it's marginalized but you can come in under the covenant in other words you can become jews paul said who is a jew anyways that's another subject so paul preemptively strikes here this gospel that this jewish christian teacher teaches now i want this to be clear it is true neither to judaism nor christianity he's not a classic person a practitioner of judaism he's a fringe practitioner of judaism he does not teach what judaism teaches judaism does not teach a salvation through works of the law he did and so did this trend in the early church and so they tried to fight it in the reformation by saying no it's not justification by human obedience to the law it's justification by human believing of the gospel and we're here to say, no, it's justification of all of creation and all of humanity through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That's what the message is. That's liberating. That's transforming. That's reconciling. That's rectifying. It's all those things. And as Douglas Campbell said when he realized all this, he said, it's got to be good for you. And I agree. And so Paul preemptively strikes and prevents the teacher from making this claim. Yeah, okay, all that world out there, they are liable to God's wrathful judgment, so that's why we're going to preach circumcision. But Paul does this. He says, look at what he does in Romans 3.20. For no human being will be justified in his sight. He's quoting again from the Psalms here, Psalm 143.2 or the Septuagint, the Greek version, Psalm 142.2, he's quoting where it says there, no flesh. It says literally, all flesh will not be justified. It's kind of a quirky way of saying it, but I like that translation. All flesh will not be justified in God's sight. Period. Over and out. That's what the psalmist said in Psalm 143 too. Nobody alive, it says. Not a living person will be righteous or set right or rectified in God's sight, period. So the psalmist prays, please don't enter into judgment with your servant, me, Lord, because nobody, no one living. You see, that's what I got to before a few messages ago. No one living. That's why Paul didn't say, I am justified with Christ. He said, I am crucified with Christ. While he was alive, he couldn't be justified, so he died with Christ. 
who was justified by his own death. Justified by the Spirit by being raised from the dead. I'm going to fan this out in the future. Don't let this trouble you. I already have this in my mind. I already see this. It's in my Bible. And I'll bring it out. But for now, I want you to see this astonishing pivot. No human being will be justified in his sight. And then Paul says, by deeds prescribed by the law, including circumcision. That means now he has the local sense of the law, the prescriptions listed by Moses in the Pentateuch. Does Paul, has he distorted the scriptures here? Has Paul added to them or taken away from them? No, he's interpreted them. If there's no way anyone alive, no one alive can be justified in God's sight by any human means, then certainly by an a fortiori argument, no one will ever be justified in his eyes by following the observance of the law, by deeds done in observance of the law. So he says to the teacher, I know what you're going to say. This people under this wrathful judgment of God can only escape by deeds according to the law. That's how the Gentiles can flee into the saved people of God by circumcision. But Paul preempts it. What a move he makes. He says, look, it says nobody by any means alive can be justified. So all the more they certainly can't be justified. And you're certainly not going to say this, are you, teacher? By deeds in observance of the law. He just blew up the whole citadel. He just demolished the whole fortress. And then because he then he says this, for through the law, these prescriptions under Moses, comes the consciousness of sin. What? The law does one thing for you. It makes you conscious of your sinfulness. It's the opposite of justifying you. It makes you more aware of the consciousness of sin. And therefore, is it John or is it somebody else that talks about confessing your sins all the time and being aware of your sins and confessing your sins and confessing your sins? Or is John really saying Christ is the propitiation for all the sins of the world? So what are you doing running around, being aware of your sins and listing them at the end of the day and confessing them so you can sleep well? Well, that's another time, another. That's, a, that's too controversial for the moment. I'm not even ready for that. So here's the local or specialized sense of namas, the commands of Moses' law. Paul is not saying here that no human being will be justified by the Old Testament the bigger sense of the word law. He's not saying no one will be justified by the Old Testament. He's saying no human being will be justified in God's sight by adherence or observance of the ordinances and commandments of Moses' law, including the command for circumcision or the observance of the Sabbath or feast days, etc. So the verse alluded to here, again, as we've already seen, and this is a key verse in all of Romans, really, Psalm 143.2. So there is the law. What am I doing here? Rightly dividing the word of truth, making fine, delicate distinctions. There is the law, the Old Testament scripture in itself, which says no one alive can be justified in God's sight, period. Because no living person can be justified in God's sight by any means. 
Paul makes the obvious and unavoidable conclusion that justification by deeds in obedience to the law is impotent to justify. He makes an obvious, unavoidable conclusion that justification by deeds in observation of the law is included, therefore, thus killing the teacher's case. Right here, the knife is struck in the teacher's case. So then, shockingly to some, that may mean even some of you, I don't know. Shockingly to some, this also kills the case of justification by the human act of believing. No one alive can be justified in God's sight. I can. I'm still alive, and I believed in the creeds of the church. Therefore, I'm justified. No, you're not. Not by that means. You've already been justified by another means. What are you struggling about? No one alive can be justified. But listen carefully. But Jesus, the righteous one, Romans 1.17, was justified by the Spirit. 1 Timothy 3.16, in his resurrection from the dead. This is where we are giving previews of coming attractions, and hopefully they are attractions. When Jesus died, he died for all. I think that's clear, 2 Corinthians 5.14. When Jesus died, he died for all. All. And so Paul says, so all died when he died. And so Jesus' resurrection to life was because he was justified in his death. In other words, God justified Jesus' faithful obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion. So he by dying, was justified for all the human race. That's why all the human race is justified in him, in Romans 5.18. This is doctrine that we haven't been before, so I'm not expecting you to see clearly. I'm only cutting away the first part of the brushy path on this one, so don't blame yourself or me for not getting it yet. Jesus was handed over for our trespasses, says Romans 4.25, He became sin for us, says 2 Corinthians 5.21, and was raised from the dead because of our justification, Romans 4.25, which means that our justification was secured by his death. That's all human beings in all their times. Moreover, we died with him, and we were also Raised with him, justified. No one alive can be justified, but we died in him. Now, this is what I meant when I opened this series in the very first message, all the way back 52 messages ago. When I said that the pastoral epistles, 2 Timothy and Titus, would be significant for the interpretation of Romans. In Romans 1, 4, what does it say? Jesus, the Son of God, was raised from the dead by the Spirit of holiness. 
First Timothy 3.16, in speaking of the mystery of godliness, says that God in the flesh, that is Jesus, was justified by the Spirit. Justified by the Spirit and resurrected by the Spirit means that God viewed Jesus as the righteous one and justified in his faithful obedience to death. But that justification of Jesus which is also the interpretation of Romans 3.26, which we're going to get to, not today, is the justification of all humankind in Adam. That's why Paul can say such shocking, radical, earth-shaking statements that people don't even want to read aloud in Scripture, in in services. In Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So, how can this be? Because no one alive will be justified in God's sight. All flesh will not be justified by any human means. But you know what that means? All flesh will be and has been justified by the act of God in Christ and the faithfulness of Christ to God at Calvary. So... The song set up the message today, as often happens. Jesus, who died in impeccable, faithful obedience, was justified in God's sight. Now, here's another even more shocking thing that I'll have to fan out later. God, the deliverance of God means two things. It means the deliverance that God worked for mankind in Christ and for all creation in Christ. But it also means that God put himself in a position of needing to be delivered. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. He has not left me alone. Don't let the cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? lead you to believe that God had actually abandoned him in this brutal fate. God has not left me alone. John 8, 29. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. The weakness of God. What do you mean the weakness of God? God in a position to have to be delivered. Jesus. Jesus, God, in a position to have to be delivered. The weakness of God is stronger than the wisdom and the strength of men. Jesus was resurrected as proof of his justification and ours. He was raised because of our justification. In the gospel, that's all about God's son, the righteous one of God is apocalypsed, astonishingly disclosed. The astonishing world reconciling, all-saving, all-rectifying, all-justifying act of God is dramatically disclosed in Paul's gospel. It's disclosed from God's faithfulness in Romans 1.17 to God's faithfulness 
From faith to faith doesn't mean from my faith into my really good faith. It means from God's faithfulness to God's faithfulness in Christ, God's righteousness, his saving act in Christ, what we call the Christ event, which is Christ and him crucified. It's called Christ and him crucified in the aorist tense in the sense that it is Christ and him having been crucified, now raised and exalted to the right hand of the Father. The Christ event includes the incarnation, the passion, the suffering, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. That event. What do you see in the Old Testament? I see that event. What do you see that event doing, justifying all? Peter got the glimpse of it at the beautiful gate. And what a good name for the place where he preached that sermon, the beautiful gate. When he said, God spoke by the mouth of all the prophets. That includes Moses. That includes Samuel. That includes Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Obadiah and Nahum, Haggai. Zephaniah, Zechariah, the exilic prophets. That includes the whole Old Testament. God spoke through the mouth of all the prophets about a apokatastasis pantom. What's in your Bible, Peter? A restoration of all things. What's in your Bible, teacher? The prescription for righteousness through obedience to Moses' law. Because it says in Leviticus 18.5, those who do them will live by them. I interpret that as those who obey the law will be justified by their obedience. Wrong interpretation. Paul squares it away. So the teacher sees in the law a prescription for human righteousness through human deeds. A friend of mine said, all I see in the Old Testament is God getting really mad and pouring judgment out on people. You know what that is? A depiction of God's pouring out of judgment on Jesus for all of us. He takes all those enemies like Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and the enemies of God and he turns them into the suprahuman enemy of sin and death which Jesus defeats at the cross. What's in your Bible? It's actually a more important question than what's in your wallet or what's in your safe, which we've heard ad infinitum if we watch TV. Now, if you haven't, God bless you. Now, Paul sees in the Old Testament an apocalypse of the universal saving act of God in Christ. What's in your Bible, Paul? What's in your Bible, Jesus? What's in your Bible? In my Bible, I read that all the prophets spoke of Messiah having to suffer to enter his glory, which is a glory that will be all through the earth, which the angels already see from a certain perspective. All the earth is full of his glory. Isaiah 6.3, the glory of the Christ who entered his glory by suffering. And as many as he justifies, those he also glorifies. We were justified in Christ's death, therefore glorified in his resurrection. Who's we? Who's we? And Brian reminded me that's a line in a Clint Eastwood movie. Who's we, sucker? To which 
Dirty Harry replies, Smith and Wesson and me. Smith is the father. Wesson is the son. Me, says the Holy Spirit. That's a majority. A majority rules in the kingdom of God. So then, who's we? All. Romans 5.18. All. Romans 5.19. All times 75 in Romans. All. 1 Corinthians 15.22. We labor and strive and suffer persecution and we fight and we suffer these things, Paul says, because we have put our trust in the living God. We have put our hope in the living God who is the savior of all humankind, especially those who believe, meaning it's especially evident to those who are participating in Messiah's fidelity, which God elicited in them. It doesn't say he's the savior of all, especially those who or only those who believe, but especially those who believe. First Timothy 4.10. I've already armed my nine and 10 year old grandsons with that verse. So what's in your Bible? Paul sees in the Old Testament an apocalypse of the universally saving act of God in Christ. That is because Paul has the perceptivity of the cross. I have determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him, starao, crucified. That's where we get to the doctrine that I call the instaration. What we expect of all creation is a transformation through the stauros, the cross. Therefore, your ideas of heaven are all wrong. You say, how do you know that? I know that because eye has not seen, ear has not heard, and has never entered into the mind of man. So take all the imaginations you have of heaven and realize that they're wrong. Wrong, way wrong. Not because they're hopeful, but because they're pathetic. Compared to what's real in the Bible. Way beyond what you could think. It's not a prolonging of this life here. Oh, hell no. Thank God for that. It's not a prolonging of our mortal life into immortality. Thank God. I don't know about you. I'm not crazy about this world. I'm not crazy about this age, this passing age. I'm not crazy about the way things are done in it about the lies that we have to hear every single day from pulpits and the press and from politicians and from almost everybody because the prince of this age is a liar, not because certain people should be pointed out as liars. That's what we all like to do to justify ourselves, don't we? A lot of hate going around today. Don't like it. I don't like it. I hate hate. So then, in clo- I better close. I, I've got so much more, but there's always Wednesday. Paul is starus-eyed, not starry-eyed. So then, here we have to make a delicate distinction between law and law. Law, small, let's make it a small L. The prescriptions of Moses. Leviticus 18.5 is the best way to say it. Those who do them will live by them. That's interpreted by these Jewish Christian missionaries is if you do the prescriptions that came from Moses' mouth, you'll live, that is, with eternal life. You'll be justified by them. Paul says that's not what it's saying. It's not what it's saying. It's a prescription for Israel in the wilderness. 
It's a prescription for the preservation of Israel socially so that they can survive so that through them Messiah will come. Who is the Christ? And so skipping about a page, I'll close with this. The final three verses in Romans almost sloughed off by a lot of my theological friends. And when I say friends, I mean men and women that have gone before me or way ahead of me and a lot of things that I read and study almost every day. They sloughed those verses off. To me, they are interpretively indispensable. You can't do away with them. In fact, they're essential. There, because it's stated there, if you look at Romans sixteen twenty-five to 27, that the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the apocalypse of the mystery, was long kept silent or kept silent through the ages, is now by the command of the eternal God to be manifested. There's an interesting word that we use in our pop culture that something pops. You read it and it pops or someone speaks and something pops. The Old Testament now pops with a manifestation of the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of a mystery because now, in other words, if you see through Jesus Christ and the crucifixion of Christ back to the law, the, all the writings of the prophets, you see the mystery revealed. And the mystery revealed is the mystery in toto that God intends to sum up everything in his son, Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1.10, the great watchword for us to watch for the future. And so the writings of the prophets is also a pars pro toto term for the Old Testament. The Old Testament has three major categories, Torah, Nevi'im, prophets, Ketubim, writings, including Psalms, including Proverbs, including some of the histories like Samuel's and Chronicles. So when you have the writings of the prophets, all of the writings of the Old Testament came through a prophet, so they are the Old Testament. What's in your Old What do you see in your Old Testament? I don't see a God other than Jesus Christ. I see Jesus Christ. I see God enacting a saving act in him that ends in the restoration of all things the justification of all humanity. So it's a matter of what's in your Bible. If a man answers that question and says, what's in the Bible to me is that all people are sinners, yes, and they all need to be justified by personally believing, and if they don't believe, they go to hell. That's what's in that guy's Bible. So what's going to come out of his mouth? That was once in my Bible. So what came out of my mouth? I was always on the way to this place, always on the way. And I haven't reached the place I'm on the way to yet by a long stretch. I see things in the scripture now that boggle my mind that make the things that I've already discovered look like child's play. So maybe he'll let me breathe and live a few more years. God spoke by the mouth of all the prophets, the entire Old Testament of the restoration of all things. And from Jesus' own mouth in Luke 24, 26 and 27 and 44, that universal restoration came by the sufferings of Messiah by which he entered his glory. So these, Jesus said, these, the totality of the scriptures, 
you guys, he said to the Jewish people of his own time, the scholars and the theologians, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. But you think you have eternal life by obedience of the mandates there. But you have a problem because you don't see that these are they that testify of me. So you don't come to me to have life. These testify of me. Moses, he says, your Moses, whom you think gave you the prescription for salvation through the law, that Moses spoke about me. John 5, 46 to 47. Read it, John 5.30, John 5.39, rather, and 40, 46 to 47. It's an assertion corroborated by the angel sent by Jesus in Revelation, I believe by the same author. Revelation 19.10b, the angel said to John, don't genuflect to me, worship God instead. And then he says, the testimony of Jesus is the very essence of prophecy. In other words, all the prophets speak of the testimony of Jesus So worship God in Jesus. Worship Jesus in God. Jesus on the cross is the weakness of God making himself in need of deliverance and being delivered for all mankind through resurrection. So Paul goes on in this all-important verse, and this is where we're headed. Look at 321. The pivot's not finished. Now he's pivoting again, and he says, but now. But now. That's a now that continues right through our own time, right here, right now, in the juncture of these two ages. The night is far spent. It's almost over. The old age is passing away. The dawn is at hand. The new age The sun's about to rise over the mountain and spill its light into all creation. So put off the old man. Put off the old age. Put off the old way of thinking. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at 321. But now, that's an emphatic, logical transition. Apart from the law. What does he mean? Apart from the Old Testament? No. Apart from the law of Moses. The prescriptions of Moses. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Thanarao, same word used in Romans 16, 26, 25 and 26. Same word used in Apocalypto. It means the same thing as Apocalypto to say, well, say that for now. The righteousness of God has been manifested. Apocalypto here in the indicative mood, which is a mood of assertion. It's a mood, a presentation of certainty. The indicative mood is not just a mood of reality. It's a mood of absolute certainty. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God, the saving act of God in Christ, has been manifested, attested by the law. This time, big L. Attested by the law. Apart from the lowercase l-a-w law of prescriptions and commandments apart from that and attested to or testified to by the law big l law and the prophets the whole old testament testified to by the whole old testament starting with genesis 1 1 through malachi 4 
So Paul drives the point home here assertively. This is the final death blow. Bam. Oh, he's got still some more. The guy's going to kick for a little while longer. But this is the citadel captured. Paul asserts this. It's a reinforcement of the thesis statement of Romans, where in Romans 1.17, the righteousness of God is apocalypsed by the gospel. The gospel sheds forth the light to see the Old Testament. The Old Testament doesn't shed forth the light to see the cross. The cross sheds forth the light to see the Old Testament. You see through staros eyes, not starry eyes. Paul is engaged in a fierce rhetorical battle to prove justification. Not, he is not, please note this, not proving justification by faith against justification by works performed by sinful human beings in observance of the law. He's not saying instead we're justified by an act of believing by sinful human beings. He's not saying that. He is proclaiming a setting right, a rectification, a universal justification of all humankind by God's action in Christ Jesus which is the demonstration of the love and faithfulness of God in the Christ event, a love from which we can never be separated. Not by death, not by life, not by principalities, not by powers, not by political institutions, not by human hatred, not by satanic hostility, not by anything, not by terrorism or tyranny or sword or peril or famine. None of these things, sin itself, death itself, a love from which we can never be separated. That's what's in Paul's Bible. What's in your Bible? Amen. Goodbye.